Hey everyone, thanks for listening to this episode of The V Word. We want to just mention up front that during this episode, you might hear a little bit of clicking from the camera or moving around. We had a team of journalists sit in with us as we recorded this episode. We are so excited that we're getting a lot of traction, mostly because of listeners like you. So thanks so much for sharing The V Word and enjoy the show. Hi everyone and welcome back to The V Word. Vagina, vagina, vagina. I'm Dr. Jen. And I'm Dr. Erica. And this is the show where we talk about all the things that affect your lady bit parts. That's right. So we're doing a special show today in honor of Women's History Month, which is March, in case you didn't know. And that is the history of birth control. Which actually has a much longer history than I think most people think. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about here. It turns out women have been trying to control, women and men have been trying to control fertility since the beginning of time. Right, but first, the news. I feel like you went first last time. Yeah, you go first. Okay, I'm going to go first. So I am talking about this article on CNN. Um, It's a London ad campaign that shows women's post-childbirth bodies in all their glory, and it's an article by Emily Dixon. Mm -hmm. We can put some Insta pictures up if you want to. Um, Because So the idea is it's this advertising campaign in the London underground, and it spotlights women's bodies after childbirth depicted um, without any digital retouching. So just like is no it like the immediate childbirth? Like, are there mesh mesh undies involved? There's no mesh undies, but it is all undies. It's oh. all bras and undies. They can't be wearing any clothes. They can't. I mean, <laughs> they can't be wearing like regular okay, okay, over okay. over garments. Um, it's called Mother Care's Body Proud Mums Campaign, and the goal is to represent a part of motherhood that is rarely seen in yes. the media, and to just really normalize. So it's got. Um, the campaign is 10 photos of women holding their babies and wearing only underwear, revealing scars, stretch marks, other physical mm. effects of pregnancy and childbirth. And it's running in 30 um, underground tubes all I over love London. That. Yeah. LCD screens. So you're talking about like oh my gosh. huge blown so up, like here's my scar. C-section scar and all the stretch marks. It's beautiful. I I love all the Instagram versions of it too. I feel like there's been a, like, yeah. I'm trying to think of what the hashtags are, but I feel like there's an Instagram of like recently postpartum where people are in their mesh undies holding their babies and still have like the what belly. The, I think it's called like normalize motherhood or something like that. Yeah. I forget the handle. We'll have to look that we'll up. We'll find yeah. that. But where you can actually see like people still look pregnant right. because the uterus right. hasn't completely gone back to normal or involute. That's yeah. our medical term and for that. And sidebar here, I think it's a nice contrast too to the other thing you saw coming out of London, which is Kate Middleton walking glamorously yeah. out of the hospital with like her, you know, her hair blowed with dried her stylist. and her just beautiful. Although yeah. she did, after her first pregnancy, have like a continued baby bump that you yeah. would like expect to see, which I don't know how you'd get rid of that. <laughs> yeah, spanks. that's true. Lots I feel of spanks. Like lots of people just like aren't photographed at all during that yeah. time. So yeah. that's. Good job, Kate Middleton. So that's my happy news. Okay. Uh, Mine's not happy. Oh, no. Surprise. (laughs) Uh, Mine is about the Trump, new new Trump gag rule, distinguished from the old Trump gag rule, because this is a national gag rule. So we have a whole episode about Trump's global gag rule, um, preventing uh, people who are providing care to women internationally Mm -hmm. from talking about or referring people for abortion. But now the Trump administration has released a national gag rule proposal last Friday on March 1st where it would prevent clinics from uh, talking talking about abortion in the United States who receive federal funding. So actually, similar to the other gag rule, it doesn't actually prevent anyone from saying anything. It just prevents you from getting funding if you say anything. Right. 
So it's like a... Um, you're blackmailing them, essentially. You're blackmailing Yeah, people. Exactly. You're saying, do what we say or we won't give you funding. Right. And the most, the clinics that are most affected by this are Planned Parenthood, right. which, is, which is very, very intentional. Right. So side note there, Planned Parenthood actually serves 40% of all Title X users. Yes. So it's... So I remember talking to different media outlets about this when the rule was first proposed, because it's a ruling, mm-hmm, like, several mm-hmm. months ago. And it's really interesting because I think it's a direct hit at Planned Parenthood, honestly. Yeah, of it's course. a direct hit. Of like, course. we're not going to give you any federal funding. And to be clear here, too, right, because federal funding does not go towards abortion. No, it's federal funding for all the right. other care that's There's not There's a whole other thing called the Hyde Amendment. You cannot use right. federal dollars Already. to pay for abortion. So this is directly cutting funding for cancer screenings for sexually transmitted infections and even care for men too right because men get care at Planned Parenthood so yeah don't even get me started we just went to see um, Dr. Lena Wen speak recently and she gave a great statistic that I think more women more people should know which is one in five women in the U.S. has received care at Planned Parenthood that's amazing one in five women you're taking care away from one in five women that's insane insane so anyways, more on that. All right. Okay. So let's get to the episode here. And I, I want to preface this by saying that the birth and evolution of birth control mirrors basically every other area of women's health in that it's laced with sexism, racism, all the other isms. Um, but it's also super unique in that it was originally seen as the science of smut. Maybe that should be the title. <laughs> the science of smut. The science I feel of like smut. we found our title. Yeah. Stay with me here for a sec. So... In its heyday in the 1950s and 60s, contraceptive research was thought of as sex research. And sex research is, or was, undignified in in pseudoscience, really. So, um, I guess the modern day way of saying that would be fake science. Fake news. Fake science. Fake science, if that makes sense. Although it wasn't. It sort of kills me that that's a phrase. Yeah, I know, don't even. Anyway, um, so because of that, there really wasn't much prestige or funding associated with it. Um, And then... Just a sidebar, in 2010, I wrote this article for Slate about contraceptive pioneers, and one of the favorite, my favorite quotes from that was, I'd interviewed Dr. Dan Michelle, who has since passed mm-hmm. away, mm-hmm. but he is this just incredible academician and incredible mind in this field, and he had said, Gregory Pincus invented birth control, and nobody knows who he is. He should have won the Nobel Prize, yeah. but instead people vilified him and thought of him essentially as Dr. Frankenstein. Yeah. I, re- was doing. I read The Birth of the Pill a long time ago, which is about the, like, four key oh, players get into in it. The Birth of the Pill. I'm, I'm get so into excited. It. Yeah. Um, also, side note, I miss, I miss your Slate columns. I miss I the know. Slate XX Slate. blog I miss the entirely. whole Double X. Yes. What happened to Double X? Actually, that's a whole other story. Double X was done away with because they revamped everything and, you know, decided women's health wasn't worth it. Exactly. Slate, wrong exactly. decision. Exactly. Slate. Oh, my. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> Okay, so that's insane, but actually the stigma goes back even further. So this comes from a piece in the Washington Post by Jeffrey Stone, who wrote a book called Sex and the Constitution. But if you look back at the 19th century, laws prohibiting the sale and or transport of birth control started popping up all over the place after New York State Senator Anthony Comstock passes what he calls the federal Comstock laws, which were actually postal service laws. Yeah. Which right. is like a crazy thing. Well, because he was like the commissioner of the postal service. Of the postal service, service right? which is yeah. a crazy thing that the postal yeah. service commissioner is the first one passing laws about contraception, right? right? But that you couldn't send them. Right. Um, and mind you, at this point, contraceptives aren't really the contraceptives we think of today, but they're like diaphragms or makeshift condoms mm-hmm. and like cervical caps, but still. Right. Okay, so then fast forward to 1914, and this fierce young woman named Margaret Sanger slightly controversial now, but we're 
positive about her at the moment, <laughs> rallies a group of friends to launch something she calls a woman rebel militant feminist monthly. I like it. I know. I would write for it. Maybe that could be our title. <laughs> um, I don't want to be militant, though. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. And in direct defiance of the Federal Comstock Act, she announces that the first issue that she would advocate for the prevention of conception and spread word of how to do it in her newspaper, which is, like... Badass. Really badass, very controversial, mm-hmm. but also information that women were literally dying to have right. at that time and right. had no other source for Exactly. So she decided she's going to yeah. stand up for them. Okay, so it's also in this moment that Sanger and her group coined the term birth control. In 1914. Right. And it's that little campaign, that little campaign she initiated, it ends up growing into what is later called one of the most far-reaching social reform movements in American history, and essentially the birth of Planned Parenthood, as we know it. So chew on that for a sec. Okay, let's get into some specifics, though. Like, how long have certain birth control methods been around, and how did we get where we are today? Mm -hmm. And much of this information comes from the report A History of Birth Control Methods by the Planned Parenthood Federation of America, which we'll link to in the show notes. Um, So let's start with abstinence, since that's what this current administration thinks is actually the only form of birth control. (laughs) Okay, it seems pretty easy. Don't have sex and you won't get pregnant. But something really fascinating that I learned while researching this episode is that that always, or that wasn't always understood. Um, That connection between sex and pregnancy. Exactly, yeah. So many Stone Age people had no idea where babies came from, and they thought that actually, like, the spirits of children lived in certain fruits, and that pregnancy was actually caused by eating these certain fruits, for example. Um, Pregnancy was a magical event. Still is, still is. It's still a magical event. (laughs) So abstinence as a method of family planning never really occurred to them, because that's magic, right? Right, right. But eventually people caught Cut on. on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Approximately nine months after this this sex <laughs> thing. Um, okay. It's the apple. They yeah. eat the apple and that's, you know. That's what, that's what caused it. Yeah. Well, there's even some evolution to abstinence. So yeah. during the 1870s, there was this rise of the, quote, voluntary motherhood movement by feminists like Elizabeth Cady Stanton uh, and Susan B. Anthony of women's suffrage fame. Um, where basically suffragists believe that husbands and wives should just do without sex altogether in order to control the size of their families. So no sex. Okay. I want to point out that Some abstinence... Some people do that still, I guess. Yeah. Abstinence was an entirely feminist move here and had nothing to do with religion, as it sometimes does yeah. today. So that's interesting, right? Because we often think about it as something that um, that is sort of peddled in, yeah. you know... Two women instead of by women. Right. Two women instead of by women. So interesting. Yeah. Uh, but this also had some set, like unintended consequences of more men seeking prostitution mm-hmm. um, and ultimately more epidemics of STIs. Yeah. Because prostitution. If only there had been better ways. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Well, there were some in that there were fertility-based awareness methods. Right, right. Um, withdrawal and lactational amenorrhea, which is um, basically not having a period while you're breastfeeding under six months of age an infant and those have been around forever because those don't require any medical right. intervention and then diaphragms were like diaphragms. a big deal yeah, yeah. so dia- DIY diaphragms I want yeah I, I want to like see an image of this DIY diaphragms don't do it but this is also another contender for the title of this episode um, but I think actually diaphragms are one of the most fascinating parts of contraceptive history because I think more than anything else it really showcases like the desperation and the ingenuity that people Mm -hmm. had um, when they were trying to plan their families. Um, So for example, there's a second century diaphragm made of hardened elephant and crocodile dung on display currently at the Toronto Museum of Contraception. So like 
Some lady put that in her vagina. Yeah, crocodile poop and just, in the vagina. Yes, because that's how desperate you were. So I just want to... Anyway. But diaphragms are fascinating also because these were the contraband that the Comstock laws were prohibiting, the, the OG right. contraception, if you will. And then also another fun fact, they used to be called womb veils. So and people didn't call them diaphragms right. necessarily, like they veiled your womb. Yeah, why are Kidding. they called diaphragms? I don't know. Is it because they kind I guess they kind of look like Maybe the anatomical of the arch. part. Yeah. yeah. Like you, so when we think of like anatomically your diaphragm, the thing that sits below your lungs and separates your your yeah, rib cage and your lungs from your intestines, it's kind of like this arched. Hmm. And that's maybe how it yeah. sits, except upside down. I wonder like, who, you can't see us. We're like, <laughs> like drawing the arch way. with our hands. I, I wonder if, um, I'm going to look into who coined the term diaphragm, because yeah. actually I don't, I don't know. know. Um, but, okay, here's the basic timetable ta- time of various methods. So we already talked about the pill around 1914, but back up a little bit. 1882, Dr. C. Haas is credited with inventing the real diaphragm. That's the one that people smuggled. Mm-hmm. And then... 1909, the first specifically designed IUD, but mind you, this IUD is made out of a ring of silkworm gut, so not the kind of stuff you're thinking about today. So many, like, intestinal pieces. I know. Well, you had to get creative. 1920s, you fast forward a couple more decades, and now they're turning the IUD um, into something a little bit more medical. It's made out of a silver ring now. And we know silver has a lot of um, antibacterial properties. Right, right. So So maybe that had something to do with it. Okay, good. Finally, something medically, (laughs) like sensical. Okay, in the 1930s, the first latex condoms make an appearance. Prior to that, all condoms were made out of animal intestine. Again, the gut is just like a flexible fabric, I suppose. I don't know what that was about, yeah. In 1938, in a case involving Margaret Sanger, a judge lifted the federal ban on birth control, ending a Comstock era, and diaphragms were suddenly everywhere. Although still only usable by married couples. And that was right, like, right. there was a whole new law for right, unmarried Right, because where do you get it? Use. So even, it's not contraband anymore. You can actually go to your pharmacist and get it, but you have to prove that you're married. Like you, yes. and there's stories too of people like borrowing yeah. people's yeah, rings yeah. to make it look like they were married so the pharmacist wouldn't judge them, you know. Which know. actually, there was an episode of that in, um, I don't know that we're that far Downton Abbey. That. Downton Abbey, right? Do you watch? No, you don't watch it. I don't watch it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, I know what Downton Abbey is, though. Anyway. Okay. okay, 1930s, 1940s. Now there's this improved understanding of ovulation and temperature changes, and it's suddenly people are developing um, and using the temperature method or the basal body temperature to sort of control their fertility. Yeah, and then in the 1950s, the combined estrogen progestin birth control pill, which is the sort of grandmother to the pills mm-hmm. we have today, begins to really emerge. Um, but we're going to put a pin on that for right now because that deserves more than a quick mention. Mm-hmm. Then come the 1960s where progestin-only methods are invented, so now methods without estrogen. And around that time, the idea of emergency contraception emerges, so um, a medication that you could take or something that you could use after you've had unprotected intercourse. Um, But the first hormonal preparations used very high doses of estrogen alone, taken over five days. And as you can imagine, Mm -hmm. that made people really sick, like tons of nausea, vomiting, side effects. Um, in the 60s, you start to see more development into the IUDs. A plastic IUD, most famously the Lippies Loop, is developed. Mm. And then in 62, the Population Council convenes its first conference on IUDs, and they're really starting to make this statement, like, IUDs are safe, they're the way of the future. 1969, you see the copper IUD, and then it's not till 1996 that a hormonal-releasing IUD, like the kind that's currently around today, is introduced. So that's a relatively new development. So let's go back to oral contraceptives. They deserve an entire sidebar here because the story is more complex and involves so many amazing scientists. 
So if you want to get super technical, oral contraception, or birth control pills, Mm -hmm. dates back more than 2,000 years when people were eating willow shoots and bees or the internal scrapings of male deer horns. That's insane. Yeah, all the things. Like, where do you get that idea? everything, basically, not to get pregnant. Yeah. I mean, we've seen, like, the even scarier version of that with all the things people try to abort a pregnancy as well. Right, right. Um, that, like... To control their fertility. To control like, their is, fertility. There's such a drive. Yes, that mm-hmm. people will do, like, very experimental, crazy things. Yeah. Um, but the idea of a birth control pill really emerges in the 20th century. Okay, so if you... Um, and if you're looking for a deeper dive into this, I would recommend the book that you mentioned previously, The Birth of the Pill, How Four Crusaders Reinvented Sex and Launched a Revolution by Jonathan Eig. Eig? Eig. Eig. I don't know. Sorry. Sorry, Jonathan. We'll figure Sorry, it out. Sorry, Jonathan. <laughs> um, so those four crusaders are the fiery feminist Margaret Sanger, who we talked about, heiress Catherine McCormick, visionary scientist Dr. Gregory Pincus, who um, was actually dismissed by Harvard in the Mm -hmm. 1930s because of his experimentation on in vitro fertilization that was just like too crazy a thought for them. Um, um, And then after which he was approached by Sanger and McCormick, we'll talk about that in a sec. And the telegenic Dr. John Rock, who is interestingly a Catholic Mm -hmm. OBGYN. He just had this face for TV and he was also willing to go up against the Catholic Church to win public approval for birth control pills. So you've got the feminist, the financier, the mad scientist, and the TV doctor, which I love, right? Like that's just such a great combination. Why is this not a Netflix miniseries? Right? (laughs) Maybe it is. The birth of the pill. The birth of the pill. You would know. know But I haven't heard of that, so maybe not. (laughs) Um, And mind you, this is just what's going on in the U.S. right now. So there's simultaneous work going on in other parts of the world as well. So in 1945, the first major pharmaceutical company and laboratory in this space is founded. It's called Syntax, and it's based out of Mexico City. And the goal there was to develop a synthetic steroid from Mexican yams that could be used as part of oral contraceptives. Mm -hmm. And that is still the source of, of oral contraceptives. Yeah, right. Dr. Carl Gerasi, who later goes on to be a professor at Stanford, becomes the director of research at Syntex and is often described as being, quote, the father of the pill for his work there. So back to the U.S. Before Pincus meets this dream team, he he approaches a company called Searle to make the pill, and they actually reject him. And this is when the connections start happening. He meets the right people, he gets the money, he starts experimenting with progesterone steroids to stop ovulation, and it works. And so then he starts asking everyone he knows at all the pharmaceutical companies to send him chemical compounds with progesterone activity. His idea at this point is that if he can just use a progesterone to stop ovulation, that's sort of the key. And his team screened nearly 200 chemical compounds and finally finds that the most promising ones are Syntex's Norethisterone and Searles, the company that rejected him originally. Um, they've got two compounds also. And these are the, like, the three most promising candidates. Yeah, so Pincus this whole time is is already focused on creating this pill right. to, to regulate ovulation. Right. Um, and a few more shout-outs to people here because people get real territorial about who invented the pill. Right. But it was really this team. So we already talked about Durasi. Luis Miramontes and George Rosencrantz are the guys at Syntex in Mexico City who made the progesterone norethisterone. Mm-hmm. In 1951. And then Frank B. Colton at Searle in the U.S. synthesized Noratonadrol in 1952, and norethendronolone in 1953. Mm-hmm. Um, and Pincus and Rock eventually choose Searle's noratonadrol uh, for the first contraceptive trials in women, and then it's subsequently discovered to be contaminated with a small amount of estrogen called mestronol. Crazy. But, yeah. But 
when they try to purify it out, they realize that women are having serious breakthrough bleeding, and so they decide to leave it in. So I think that's, like, one of the yeah, craziest things. Yeah, it was an accident, right? I mean, estrogen. some of the best inventions are accidents, but we don't often think about birth control. Like, the pill we know and love, we came to it because of an accident. Right. Yeah. And, and we still know this to be true. So progestin-only pills or pills without estrogen still have much more spotting and breakthrough right. bleeding right. than pills that contain estrogen. Mm-hmm. So that's why they left it in. Mm-hmm. And they call it a novid, and it's ready for trials. Okay, so here comes the controversy, because what good story doesn't have controversy, right? Okay, this really needs to be a Netflix miniseries. It really does, yeah. Pitch us, Netflix. <laughs> we, will, we will narrate it? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so they decide to test the pills on brown women, because, duh, racism, Yeah. right? And these trials start in 1956 in Rio Piedras, Puerto Rico. And get this, the subjects of the trial were not informed that they were participating in an experiment or that the pills they were given had not yet been proven to be effective or safe, or that there were any potential side effects. So now yeah. we have lots of laws that protect people against this. Right. But for the birth of but the pill... But in the 50s, this didn't happen. Yes. So guess what happens when you throw a ton of estrogen at women, because that's what the first pill had, is a ton of estrogen. Very different than today. Right. You get blood clots and you die. So very, very dangerous, and this is happening down in Puerto Rico. So then let's fast forward here because there's a ton more details about follow-up trials and eventual testing on U.S. women once we once they've tested on Puerto Rican women, racism. But eventually, they bring the pill to market with a slightly lower dose of estrogen, and they don't release any information on the high risk of blood clots until much, much later. Yeah. So the first published report of a blood clot from... Um, a woman using a novid didn't appear until 1961, which is four years after its FDA approval. That's by the, insane. By the time it was being used by over one million women. Can you imagine if that so happened right now? Well, it's kind of it kind of reminds me of something we were talking about earlier today with hormone therapy, which yeah. we haven't yet talked about in this podcast. But right. in that, there's sort of like uh, there's it's being used by millions of women. And then all of a sudden... You mean like postmenopausal hormone Postmenopausal therapy. hormone But therapy. I think the opposite happened there. So like, you know, a couple decades ago when yes. the media got a hold of all these studies, the Women's Health Initiative, and they started um, really freaking people out about the risks of hormone replacement therapy for menopausal or postmenopausal women. Um, it was, I think, sort of based on history like this. We have this terrible history in this country of testing on women, testing on people yep. of color. Tuskegee, you don't even get started on that topic. So when something comes out in, you know, putting a medicine or a hormone in a bad light, I think people are really quick to just, like, stop. Stop it. Don't go back. Like, right. we've, you know, right. don't do but that But at again. this point, actually, there wasn't, like, crazy publicity at the One Million right. Women. Right. Didn't necessarily get, like, a, a Twitter mm-hmm. alert about their pill. <laughs> stop your pills. Okay. Yeah. So it would take almost a decade of epidemiological studies to conclusively establish that an increased risk of blood clots or venous thrombosis in oral contraceptive users and an increased risk of stroke and heart attack um, in women who smoke or have high blood pressure really is going on here. And just to put this in perspective too, because I think a lot of people might hear this and then freak out because, oh, I'm taking birth control pills, whatever. But each pill used in the 1960 was was roughly equivalent to seven of today's pills. I didn't know that. I feel like that's yeah. a useful thing to notice. Right. To know and can... And that's what people talk about when they're talking about high dose. So if someone like hears this or they or they mention high dose birth control pills, imagine taking seven birth control pills every single day. That's even more than the like emergency contraception regimen. You right. know, when we use right. birth control pills, right, right, right. which we don't. But really this know. is the risk they were putting people in. Yeah. This is you know this is why women were dying in Puerto Rico, and they weren't telling them that they you know. And they, they were, still weren't all yeah. dying, for the record. Like, right. No, they weren't most all of dying. them were not no. dying. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so a few more notable time points. 
1990s, Norplant comes to market, which is the first contraceptive implant, Mm -hmm. um, the sort of grandmother of what is currently available, the next one on. In 1992, Depo-Provera, an injectable method, is released. Both of these are progestins. Yep. So no estrogen. No estrogen. And then in 1993, FC1, the female condom, and then Plan B, which is a dedicated progestin-based emergency contraceptive, mm-hmm. comes to market in 1999. And then in the 2000s, there's rapid expansion in method availability and improvements in safety and effectiveness, including the introduction of the Mirena, a, lo- a new levonorgestrel releasing IUD in 2000, Ortho-Evra, which is a hormonal patch in 2001, the Nuva Ring, a vaginal ring in 2001, and then Esher, a method of transcervical or sort of through through the cervix into the tubes, female sterilization in 2002. Sidebar on Esher, it's off the market. As of December of last year, it was taken off the market because of um, a number of lawsuits, really, that were claiming... Um, in addition to, I think it was supposed to be 10% of women who have the Esher have this sort of chronic baseline pelvic pain, pain that comes um, from the procedure, but it, it ended up being higher than that. And also um, there were reports of the Esher device like perforating through the tubes and just causing a lot of problems with that. So it was enough. It was a high enough number, although still absolute, the number of this was small, to just pull the whole yeah. um, device. Yeah, and I think actually that was a company decision, not right. an FDA dis- right. directive. Right. Which... All the FDA did was put a black box warning right. on it, but the company just said it's not worth it anymore, right. and they just took it off. But which is good in lots of ways that we're being more protective of women, but hard because there is not currently another method of sterilization that we can do without surgery. Right. Right. Okay. So then Implanon, which is a single rod implant. Um, because the Norplant had multiple rods, mm-hmm. is invented in 2006. And then FC2, which is an improved female condom, comes in 2009. Yeah. And then I think, like, in the last, I, I think we'll just sort of sum up here, the last 10 years, um, we've seen a couple of, like, fine-tuning um, yeah. of the software, I guess you could say. So the emergency contraception got a little bit more sophisticated. Plan B one step, you can now use emergency contraception mm-hmm. with just one pill. Um, within 72 hours of uh, having unprotected sex. You see Ella, which is a different emergency contraception. You can take that within five days. And not progesterone, not estrogen. Right. Um, And that one is only um, available through prescription, prescription, though, is the downside with Mm -hmm. that. Um, That was invented in 2010. Skyla, Kylina, Liletta, you're hearing all these new names of different variations of the levonorgestrel IUD. Which is also good because it creates competition because right. when it was just the Mirena and just the Paragard, which is the copper IUD available in the U.S., if there's no competition, they can charge whatever they want to charge for them. Mm-hmm. And the increased competition with different IUDs is really helpful for making them affordable options for yeah. women as well. Yeah, yeah. But this is a field of research that continues to evolve. You know, there are products and and methods that are still in development right now. It's a lot of just fine-tuning what currently exists. For example, one I think you mentioned in a previous episode, there's Anavera, which is the Mm -hmm. vaginal ring. It used to be that you'd put it in for three weeks, take it out for a week. And sometimes you could just put in um, a new ring and do it continuously. But now there's the ability to just use one ring for the entire year, which is great. And you don't have to refrigerate it. And you don't have to refrigerate great. it. So Although I just, I just tried to get a, write a prescription for someone because actually the people that love the vaginal ring yeah. love the vaginal ring. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so I feel like this has great potential for people, but I can't. I, uh, it's not available yet in pharmacies oh, near yeah. us. So Working out the kinks a little. But I'm excited but about anyway, that. Anyway, more to come on this definitely. Yeah. This is a really fascinating area of research and something obviously that we feel very passionate about. We've yeah. seen even just in the short, you know, relatively short amount of time that we've been practicing at Doctors, we've seen um, 
a lot of development and a lot of evolution of this, so fascinating. I mean, we've, we've been trying to figure out heart disease for way longer, right? Like, there have oh, yeah. only actually been 50 years of funded research controlling contraception, which is right. a topic that affects literally everyone. Ha- 100% of, of the population. No, it affects 100% everyone, of them. Everyone, right? Yeah. You know someone who's using birth control. Don't pretend you don't. Exactly. And so it's crazy to me that we've only had funded research in the past 50 years for this. And yeah. I'm so excited about now that we have funded research, we have great research consortiums. Mm-hmm. I hope they're the research for contraception doesn't go away from the no. NIH with conservative administrations, uh, um, yeah. although it is increasingly harder to get funding for contraceptive research. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some great private foundations and other yeah. other groups that are really trying right. to continue to put money into this. Yeah. But um, look at what we've been able to do even without funding. Mm. So um, I'm excited for what the next 50 plus years brings in contraceptive research. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you've liked this episode of The V Word, please visit us at www.vwordpod.com and listen, rate, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at vwordpod. This podcast was written and produced by the V Word team, Dr. Jennifer Conti, Dr. Erica Cahill, and Bethany Bonilla. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Jesse Karen and Rebecca Frank. And we are the hosts of Welcome Welcome to to My My Vagina. Vagina. We will take you on a laugh till you queef adventure. Where we will destroy the taboos of sex, one well-researched episode at a time. It's a little like being in your sex ed class, but with actual information. And no uncomfortable gym teacher. We'll teach you to mind your business. Because a woman's body is her body, and anything you say or do otherwise will be used against you. So join us on our foray through the patriarchy. Where we shut down misogyny via the black holes in our vaginas. Please listen wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Instagram at Welcome to My Vagina. And Twitter at welcome to my badge. See you next Tuesday.